that's in Palma, uh, and uh, and about everything else as well. Um, because when we met last night, for for those of you who don't know, she's a she's a nun in the Tibetan tradition. She has a um, she's the head of a, a of a nunnery in uh, uh, a rural area of uh, northern India, uh, an hour or so from Dharamsala. Uh, that's the most recent part of her history, um, and she's uh, uh, just been traveling and teaching in the United States, partly partly to teach, and just because she said, I said, why did you why did you do this? Uh, she talked about touring the world to teach and that she's done it a couple of times a year for some years now. And she said it's the last one that she's doing, alas. But she said it's getting hard. She was born in 1944, so that she's 65, coming on 65. And uh, also to raise money for her, uh, for her, her convent, her nunnery. And she has 50 women uh, who are nuns there, um, some Tibetan, some uh, from the borderline areas of uh, Ladakh because she's out in that part of the Punjab near to those um, bordering countries, bordering onto India. And uh, women who have elected uh, to uh, become nuns in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition they learn English, they learn Tibetan, and they learn Buddhism. They learn Buddhist philosophy and practice. And uh, there are 50 of them. Uh, when I left, I left thinking, I wonder when I can visit. I was very, I was very uh, lifted up by her, and I've been thinking about it ever since. I wanted to start by telling you a little bit about her, but... Uh, and, uh, and also in the largest context to talk about what it was that moved me so much about her. Because it, uh, those of you who saw her this week here were moved by her. Um, she asked me at one point in our conversation, she said, what do you do with your Wednesday morning group? And I, I started to tell you earlier, I told her we say hello, we get to know each other, we meditate, we sometimes have time for questions about the meditation practice. I said, and then I give a talk after that on some aspect of the Dharma. I said, but you know what's the best part for me? I said, at the end of our sitting, we um, offer communal prayers. We really mention the people that are on our minds that we're thinking about. And I explained just the way it's evolved here, uh, where we're a big group of people and for the most part, I don't know who said what, and most of us don't know who has offered what prayer for whom, but we know something about someone's father or someone's husband or someone's child or someone's neighbor or someone's friend who has something. I said, you know, at the end of that, I said, um, I sit there and I listen and I don't even know who the person is, but I, I don't even know the person who's offering the prayer, except sometimes it's a, it's a voice that I recognize, like Susan's. I said, but I said, I always feel, and I'm sure everybody does, that it's such a lesson in the communal suffering that body and spirit are heir to, that everything happens to everybody. You know, this one has this, 
that one has that, and this one has something else, and this one has something else. And it's, I said, after that, I uh, always have as my task to give some sort of a Dharma talk. But I always feel like anything I could say could not measure up to those 10 minutes in terms of a Dharma talk. Because if I wanted to give a Dharma talk about what did the Buddha teach in essence, he taught that life is very challenging, that challenge happens to everybody, and that suffering happens attendant to challenge when we can't really accommodate it. And that the, 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 the core of his message is not that we could end challenge because that can't happen given the fact that these bodies have time-limited <laughs> shelf life. Uh, but we could hold, we could somehow cultivate a mind that holds that human truth that it's difficult for everyone in compassion we could somehow not come out not disdaining life, not saying life is too difficult, I'm out of it, but the opposite. I'd like to tell people uh, the, the... I just popped into my mind now, I hadn't meant to tell you, but sometimes when people ask about how did I get started on this whole study and practice of, of meditation... I tell them that in 1977, my husband went on a meditation retreat, and he came home and he said, Sid, you have to do this. And uh, uh, more because I'm a congenial kind of a partner, not because I was so interested in meditation. Uh, I I did most everything that he came home and said, Sid, you have to try this. And, And he tried a lot of other things before this that weren't so attractive to me, actually. I got initiated into a lot of things. Nothing was bad for me. Nothing was bad. I got initiated into a lot of things, and they were all good, but I wasn't interested in them in a way that caused me to continue. And then he came home, and he said, so this is it, and uh, you should try it, which was normally his way. And I I agreed first to do a weekend. And uh, so he dropped me at a place uh, at a private home in uh, San Jose, where someone had organized a weekend with a teacher, not anyone who's any longer in this life. So it's a teacher uh, at that time of some renown, and someone had organized this in a private home. There were probably 15 or 20 people there, uh, packed into, in my view, too small of a space. It was very uncomfortable. We were sleeping on the floors in two bedrooms on mattresses on the floor, men and women together, There were a lot of things about it that were not so comfortable for me. I was a little too old to be hip. It was 1977. Everybody there was much younger than I. 1977, I was, what, 41 years old. I had four adolescent children. What was I doing with all these young hippies sleeping on a floor on a mattress and people I didn't know? And I didn't understand the instructions. I had a terrible headache because there was no caffeine served. You notice how Joe brings me the caffeine every morning. Now, you know, uh, I had a terrible headache. I couldn't wait to go home. I couldn't go home because my husband dropped me off and said, I'll pick you up Sunday evening. So I was waiting for him to come. I was rehearsing stories, speeches I would make about what, you know, what I had put up with and what, you know. And in fact, I, he picked me up, and by the time he picked me up, it wasn't that I had some great insight, actually, uh, and 
really what the reason I'm telling you this story is that people say you had such a terrible time. Why was it that two months later you were on your way to Oregon for a 14-day retreat? And it didn't sound like a good beginning. Um, and, uh, the, the, and frankly, I've made up the answer because I don't know why. Uh, I have actually a little photo of me sitting. It's, you know, you take a group photo at the end of a class who was there. And I'm sitting in the bottom row at the edge, and I don't look unhappy. So maybe I really wasn't as, uh, as unhappy as I remember being. But the other thing I remembered is that they had a living room with a mantelpiece, uh, and I was doing walking meditation back and forth in front of that mantelpiece. And on it, that had a little sign on a little redwood burl, those kind of ones that you buy in, uh, in um, state parks that say home sweet home and that kind of thing on it. So it was a little redwood polished burl, and it said, Life is so difficult. How can we be anything but kind? And I thought to myself, huh, if that's what they know here, and that's what they teach, I must have thought that. I must have thought that, because I walked back and forth, and I saw that little burl, and I liked it a lot. And two months later, I was back on a 14-day retreat, and that was 1977. It was July 7th, 1977, that I went up to Toledo, Washington, and I never left. And I think that fundamentally... That's really the teaching of the Buddha, that if we really looked around and really stopped and thought, this lifetime, is, is compl- being in a life, is a complicated thing for everyone. You know, you look around, you think, oh, for them it's good, for them it's good, for them it's good. For everybody, it's got its own complications. I was on my way home the other day. I live up in um, a rural part of Sonoma County, and so the last several miles to my house are on a country road. It's beautiful. It's got vineyards either side. Riding along my country road, uh, going home with my husband. We had left an hour and a half before. Riding back, going home on the road. And we see that there's a car in the middle of the road stopped ahead of us. So we slow down to see what's happening. And we see that on the other side there's a truck that's come along. And he stopped too. And what's happened is a tremendous branch of one of those big old oak trees, big, huge branch, has fallen down, plop, in the middle of the street. And uh, it turns out that someone came up with it. The person who was coming the other way happened to have a truck. He backed up. He, he had, happened to have a chain and a, and a, and a hook in it. You know, live in the country, people have that kind of thing. And it hooks up the chain. We all get out of our cars. He's pulling with the chain. We're all trying to push this incredibly heavy tree branch out of the road so that people can go home. And someone else is calling up the whatever department, the city, the, the sheriff's department, to tell them about it so they can come and clean up the debris. But And someone said, you know, I'm going to tell them that these branches, you know, that these are old trees. The park, the, whoever does the roads and parks should come out and look here at these but who could know which branch to cut? Those oak trees have been there more than 100 years. And that afternoon, this huge piece of oak tree fell off. It fell when nobody was there. But there were, you know, but people walk their dogs up and down there. People are running. I ride my bike up and down there. An hour and a half, we'd ridden our car passed by there. This morning, uh, I had ready to bring a poem that 
Susan said, you don't happen to have a poem with you. You do. I had it ready to bring, and I forgot it on the table. And I was sitting this morning, and I thought, I forgot the poem. This is by uh, Vislava Szymborska, who uh, is a contemporary Polish poet. It's called Could Have. It could have happened. It had to happen. It happened earlier, later, nearer, farther off. It happened, but not to you. You were saved because you were the first. You were saved because you were the last. Alone, with others, on the right, on the left. Because it was raining. Because of the shade. Because the day was sunny. You were in luck. There was a forest. You were in luck. There were no trees. You were in luck. A rake, a hook, a beam, a break, a jam, a turn, a quarter inch, an instant. You were in luck. Just then a straw went floating by... As a result, because although despite what would have happened if a hand, a foot within an inch, a hair's breadth from an unfortunate coincidence, so you're here, still dizzy from another dodge, close shave, reprieve, one hole in the net, and you slip through? I couldn't be more shocked or speechless. Listen how your heart pounds inside me. A few years ago, right here on Sir Francis Drake, between here and Forest Knolls, there was a woman driving a car, and a tree branch fell, I get all teary, on her car. Whole tree fell over on her car in one of those big storms, and she was killed, and her grandchild in the back seat was not. And her dog. And her dog was, was not in the back, was not killed in the back seat. Radio was still running in the car. One second later, the child. One second, two seconds later, nobody. One second before, nobody. You know, when you think about it, you think about taking, you know, I would never say, oh, so-and-so did bungee jumping. Oh, I would never do that. It's dangerous. But when you think about it, the whole life is dangerous. You could be walking your dog on a country road and a piece of oak tree falls down, but it could have happened sooner or later or something else. There, um, there's, a, there's actually a blessing that's part of uh, Jewish tradition that you say when you arrive at usually a, uh, a remarkable occasion, like you come to a new birthday or uh, you get married or uh, you, uh, uh, your whole family gets together for Thanksgiving and you're all there again, um, where some, you've arrived at some notable time and you did it. And the blessing, in essence, says, I'm grateful to have been kept in life and sustained and made it until this time. It was a very, very blessing of my father, who would say it every year. We lived very near the Atlantic Ocean, so we couldn't swim in the winter, but we'd swim in the summer and start to swim in the spring. And he and I would go to the beach together. 
And he would say it while entering the ocean for the first time every June. And he would say it with the first peach and with the first asparagus. Now, of course, we eat peaches and asparagus all year long, so uh, well, some of us do. Some of us who read The Omnivore's Delight don't do that anymore, but... uh, what were we going to say, Susan? I was going to say, we said that when we were arrested at, at the federal building. Maybe you should have said that. <laughs> <laughs> Susan is reminding me that on that one notable occasion in her life and mine that we were arrested, we were arrested together for protesting the invasion of Afghanistan with a lawful, well-behaved uh, civil disobedience in front of the federal building in San Francisco. And when we were arrested with a lot of clergy, uh, because they were all people from congregations who came together. Uh, A significant number of us were uh, first-time arrestees, and a significant number of us were Jews. So we made that same blessing to have arrived at, to have been kept in life and maintained and sustained until that day. It was a notable day. But, you know, when I was an adolescent, and beginning to be aware of the fact that you never know from one moment to the next. I really had sort of the beginnings of a sense of, uh-oh, this is a risky business, this being in life. You don't know. When you say to somebody, I'll see you later, you actually don't know. It's a, it's an actuarial guess. And I got to be, uh, you know, I, got to, I was going to say, I got to be a melancholy adolescence. Uh, the melancholy, which I think is part of my personality all of my life, having kicked in at that point, I began to think we should be making that blessing every single night when we make it home. You know, I see my children now all together. I think, oh, you know, it could have been otherwise. It always could have been otherwise. So I've told you that all as a prelude to the fact that uh, there's something about the recognition of the uh, the the um, uh, I don't want to say the, the frailty of life, but the temporality of life and and the frailty of it, the things that flesh and mind are heir to that we mention in all our prayers, but even the the uh, the unusual things like a tree branch falls falls on somebody, uh, a uh, the, there's uh, oh, what's the name of that. Um, the poet who's a poet laureate, Billy Collins, in one of his poems, talks about that awareness of the temporality of life. You never know, he says, when your heart will have ticked the last time. And he has an image in that poem. He said, you never know. Every once in a while, he says, it happens that a safe falls out of an upper story of a building. You know, when you see those cartoons where a person is walking along merrily reading they're usually their medical report, very low cholesterol, very low blood pressure, very low this, very low that. And a safe has fallen out of a window above them, and they're walking along. And he says every once in a while the odd safe falls out of an upper floor. But not, you know, not frequently. But, you know, you, you never know. But you wonder about um, if we really kept ourselves aware of that, the fine line between being frightened and really living every day, really appreciating every moment, and really manifesting ourselves kindly, because we don't know when is this person's last day, or what particular burden of fear they're carrying with them. And I wanted to start with that, because I want to tell you about Annie Tenzin Palmo. 
because I think that the great inf- the great excitement I felt in meeting her is uh, in her own way she le- she has uh, undertaken a path which to me seemed very courageous. It still seems courageous. It's not to take anything away from her path and her courage. But then I ended up, as I reflected on it later last night, and I was going to tell you about it because I'm thrilled by her, and I want to end up saying we are all courageous, everybody who got up this morning. Somebody said all of us who got up this morning and came here were courageous. (laughs) We decided to have another day on this planet, you know, and put on our clothes and come here and hear about troubles and hear about what's going on in the news and get phone calls with terrible newses maybe or, or good newses. Ani Tenzin Palma was born in uh, in England 40, 65 years ago, and at 18 she was introduced to Buddhism, and at 20 she decided to go to India. She met her teacher, and she ordained as a Tibetan nun at 21. I said, what did your mother think about that? <laughs> uh, I, You know, as I realized, you know, she and I met each other and liked each other very much instantly, and we had a wonderful conversation. Then I thought later, what was wonderful is I didn't, I didn't think about what I was asking her, and then I thought later, you know, I'd like, what did your mother think about that? She said, my mother was completely into it. My mother was so supportive. My mother came to India and lived there with me for a year and was very excited about my ordaining. Anybody here has a mother who would have, you know? <laughs> I, you know I, thought, I thought that was great, you know? Your child says, I'm going to India and I'm ordaining. You know, and you have different plans for them. But <laughs> keep in mind that we're working on these cards with phrases from the Metta Sutta and what, what fits what. And I'm thinking about contented and easily satisfied how many of us would be satisfied if our child said, I'm moving to India, I'm becoming... Anyway, mother came, was very happy, rejoiced in her ordination. She then studied with that teacher for six years, I think. And then that teacher said, you should really go study with so-and-so in a more remote place. She went to study with so-and-so in a more remote place and was there studying for 12 years. Uh, then that person said, or she felt to herself... I need to be more remote. She was living in a in a monastery, in a convent. So I knew, this is pretty remote, is what you're thinking, right? So I need to be more remote. She said, so someone had found a cave uh, way up in the mountains that was very comfortable, comfortable cave. So I moved up there, and I stayed there for 12 years. Ah, so... Uh, you know, and I asked, and she said, I said, 12 years, you know, <clears throat> who brought you food? These are the things that I thought about. Who brought you food? Uh, she said, well, I would stock up for a year. I would take a lot of beans and rice. Beans, what did she say she took? Beans and rice and tsampa, uh, flour, oil. said, what did, where did you get water to drink? She said there was a spring a half a mile away. Uh, so that's what she, uh, how did you cook? She said, well, we had a little stove. I had a little stove that you could. She was totally alone? She's totally alone. Totally alone, Barbara. Totally alone in this cave. Uh, she said, I came down once a year to meet my teacher and discuss my practice and get new provisions for the next year. 
So, um, and then she said, and then I did that for nine years, and then I decided to do a three-year retreat. So not coming down for three years. So then I went in for three years with supplies, and then I came out. And then she said, then I felt I really needed to um, go back into Western culture because I'd forgotten it. I'd you know, been living in seclusion for 22 years, and I'd grown up in England, and I really felt I needed to put my experience into a perspective. So I had a friend who was living in Assisi, so I went to Italy, and Italy was wonderful, she said. And, was, so, and I was listening to this. The cave was wonderful, and Italy was wonderful. And I had tremendous admiration for that. You know, not the cave was better, and India was wow, Italy was wild, but or that or the, Italy was better. The cave was great, and Italy was great. And then she went back and uh, began to teach here and there, and then she set up this convent and four nuns and is collecting money and building it up and now has 50 nuns in residence and will retire there after this year and teach the nuns there and stay there. She said you could come and visit and I thought whoa. So but apart from you know that seemed very exciting it also seemed very appealing but let's go back to the cave because I show you what I was the kinds of questions that I asked I said um did you, what did you do about going to a dentist for 10 years? <laughs> I don't know if anybody ever asked her that. She said, I didn't. She said, my teeth were all right. I said, uh, did you ever get sick? She said, well, I did sometime. So I said, well, what did you do? She said, I waited until I got better. Uh, she said, once I got an infection in my eyes, and I was blind for 49 days, but then I got better. So I, I said, she said, well, you know, there's an expression in Tibetan, uh, you live and you live, uh, you live, so you're living, and you're sick, so you're sick, and then you die, then either you die and you're dead, or you live and you live, something like that. <laughs> but it's uh, that easy, you're well and you're well, and you're sick and you're sick, or you die and you die, or you live and you live, it's just like that. So I told myself that, and I stayed there. And so you can imagine, I'm pretty much in awe of this kind of equanimity around what's essentially true. I mean, she's right. You live and you live. So the mind that that I have, I don't know what you have, but the mind that I have says, well, wait a minute. There are lots of illnesses now that you're well and you're well and you're sick and you're sick and then you go get treatment and then you live further with it. You know, it doesn't just take its own course. But in the long run, we're all going to die. So that's another way of looking at it. And I remember that, uh, you know, I did not do any substantial long practice in Asia since I came to this practice as a, already, a, you know, in my 40s with grown children and I didn't have the kind of situation that I could or wanted to leave. But most of my friends were quite young when they went to Asia and studied with their teachers. And many of them got sick and living in jungles with some one or another jungle disease. And some of them I, I remember feeling badly that I didn't have any heroic stories about getting airlifted out of jungles with <laughs> critical illnesses, which many of my friends have. And I said, "Why didn't you leave earlier? Before that, as you you know, as you were getting sick, why did you wait till a critical moment?" 
they said I was feeling so good about what I was learning, and I felt fine. And I thought, well, you know, either I'll get better or I won't. And I'm really <coughs> considerably in awe of that kind of thought. You know, if my, if my child called and said, I feel sick, I'd say, let's go to the doctor. I wouldn't say, let's wait, you'll live and you live. Or this and that. <laughs> you know, that, but... But I'm tremendously in awe of the kind of equanimity that can do that kind of thing. It's really not a frightened mind. So I said, were you ever afraid? I said, you know, all alone in the cave for all those years. I said, did you know what day it was? So she said, I did, because I had a calendar. And as a Tibetan practitioner, you need to know what day it is because you need to do certain rituals on the full moon and the half moon and the new moon. So I could mark off the days. So I knew what day it was, and I knew how many days I'd been there. And uh, I said, did you read? Did you have uh, books? She said, I had some. I had um, biographies of uh, uh, nuns or people who had been, um, who had done spiritual practice like this that, that inspired me. And I had some texts about, of, of ritual practices because in Tibetan practice there are a lot of practices to practice. She said I didn't have philosophy books with me because um, she said fundamentally I'm not a philosopher so I didn't have philosophy books with me. But there she was and we didn't uh, we didn't say, actually talk about were you happy or not happy. Clearly she was happy. She stayed there 12 years or contented or I said to her uh when you came down to talk to your teacher, I tell you all this, by the way, because we lamented that, well, lamented, I lamented, she listened, that she couldn't be here this morning. I said, I would ask you all these, all these questions within my class. She said, that'd be fine. Uh, she said, I like to have questions and answers. I don't like so much to expound on things. Mm-hmm. So I, I said, that when you went down to see your teacher every year, did... Uh, he asked you questions about your practice. She said it was more the other way. She said, when I did my practices, I always had paper and pencil, and I wrote down my questions as they came up as I was practicing. So I would come with a big pile of questions. She said, my teacher would always greet me with a smile, and he would say, where are all your papers with your questions? And I would ask all my questions and then go back for another year. It's a long time. I said, were you ever frightened? She said, well, you know, not of anything happening to me from people. You know, it's a very safe area. And I guess people knew she was in that cave, but no one ever came. And uh, she said, you know what I, uh, she said, the only thing I ever worried about was in the winter, it would snow. So I'd get snowed in sometime for a while. So uh, she said, and the snow would accumulate on the top of the roof of the cave, and I'd have to go up to clear off the snow because if it was too heavy, it could break down the roof of the cave and it would leak in anyway. So I had to go up there and climb up there and shovel off the snow. She said, and I was afraid a little bit that I might slip and fall and maybe break a leg or break an ankle, and there would be no way to get help. So that, that worried me. She said, other than that, I didn't worry. So when I left, I'll, I'll think of if there was anything else we talked about. The thing that was uh, the, the thing that I can't convey to you because you, you have to be with her is that she sparkles. She just is. Uh, ju- she does. You saw her, Edie. She, does. she, she sparkles. She has, has this joy. 
sparkling out of her eyes she, all the time when she walks in, when when she looks at you, she's and a, a laugh, but her eyes, I've never seen her eyes, but they really look as if with phosphorus, phosphorus, yeah. blue phosphorus coming out. Yeah. And she spreads that over all of us. She sparkles. Yeah, yeah. There's something very light and easy about her. Like nothing is a problem. She's and now she's traveling because she's teaching Dharma and collecting money for her monastery. And next year she won't because it's getting older and it's getting a little harder. But it's not like, oh, whoa, I can't do that anymore or maybe I should or maybe I shouldn't. Now is the time to do that. Like now is the time to sit in a cave. Now is the time to go to a CC. Now is the time to tour the world. Now is the time to stop touring the world. It's like uncomplicated, you know, I think to myself. Whoa. So I was very, very taken by um, and that was one more conversation we had. We talked about uh, that looking at people and uh, feeling something about them that becomes a transmission that uh, that so that you can't exactly say in words, aha, uh-huh, I, I know what that person is thinking or feeling, but there's something compelling about it. Like I look at her and I think she sparkles and she laughs and she talks. I think maybe somebody's been 12 years in a cave, they'd forget how to talk. She didn't forget how to talk. She's, she's conversant and funny and interesting and interested. and Yeah. There was, uh, you brought up her mother, and there was something that she said yesterday as she was talking about love, um, about her mother. Um, her mother said that her greatest wish was that in her next incarnation she would come back as Ani's mother again because she didn't know whether anybody else could understand her. Oh. <laughs> That's a very sweet thing. Understand her and be happy for her to leave. Yeah, right. Yeah, not cling. Not cling, nor did she cling... At some point in the conversation, I said, what, what, you know, did your mother die? She said, oh, yes, she'd be 100 by now. She said she died in 1984. I said, oh, my father died in 1984. What day did your mother die? And she said, I don't know. I was on retreat. I found out about it afterwards. But it's, it, what, it's like just, it's not like a horrible thing that she doesn't know or a good thing. It's just, I don't know, I was on retreat. But she, her mother let her go. She let her mother go. It was something very compelling about the ability to to not cling. So now we make. Uh, I'm thinking. Was there anything else I wanted to tell you about Annie Tenzin Palmo? It'll come to me. But yeah, she's still in the Bay Area. She's still teaching. At the very moment, she's teaching uh, uh, Lama Paulden's class in Surfville. And Yvonne Rand's in uh, in Alexander Valley tomorrow. It's been full, yeah. And then she's gone. And then she's gone. We'll all have to make a field trip to her. <laughs> her. Um, I think she's teaching in Europe next, next year. I'm yeah. yeah. That's but, you know, maybe we'll read one of her books and talk about it. and Who knows? But the thing that, the, the transmission for me, again, 
is, um, I think about, there, there, are, there are two lines that are very compelling. Uh, it, well, there are more than that in the sutta that I'm thinking about, but she, she, the two things that come up in talking to her is that she doesn't and didn't need more than what she had, ever. I think to myself as the, as a sign of contentment. You know, I listened to the, to the thing that she lives in a cave for a year with uh, rice and dal, uh, lentil stew, and flour and oil. Uh, oh, she said in the summer she grew potatoes and turnips. She had potatoes and turnips. I forgot to ask her if she took vitamins. Did she take vitamins? Twelve years, a young person. Well, did you take calcium? Where was the calcium? Is it in the dog? You know, the toothpaste, you know, any of the questions that I would ask myself. You know, going to a cave for 12 years, you got to take a few things. But she, but, but she, di- but she didn't, but, the, huh? I asked her how did she bathe. She, she said, not too frequently. Not too frequently, uh, but uh, when you bathe, you take water and you heat it, and you bathe. I did ask her, how did you bathe? She said, not too frequently. Um, <laughs> to my knowledge, she did not. But, the, you know, that's a thought, you know, to, to be without another living being. She had practices that she did. And I think, you know, this is my adding on. We didn't talk about that. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't germane. I guess I, maybe I spent all my time asking about baths and teeth. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but what other practices, Edie? Well, she did. Um, there was a, a person in the group who, who was a longtime practitioner um, and really had <coughs> a phobia about bugs. Yeah. And, and was working so hard and was wondering whether they could take the precepts because they, this cockroach came and yeah. just wanted to kill it. Yeah. And her answer to the question was when he said, um, Can I take the Bodhisattva vows? She said, No, take a glass, put it on top of the cockroach, and then carry the cockroach out doors and let it go, and that's your practice. Uh. And she said that in the context of um, of well-wishing for all sentient beings. So this is going to get us around to the well-wishing from all sentient beings. Because in the... Uh, so we did, we're not going to do all the cards today, right? That's good, because it gives everybody a chance to do the homework for next week. <laughs> they come back. So the homework, folks, was these are... These are uh, cards, right? And on every card is written one line from the Metta Sutta. If you don't have a Metta Sutta, I don't know if I have extra ones today. You look it up online. The Buddha's teaching on loving kindness. The Metta Sutta, M-E-T-T-A. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Write one line on each card. And what I want to talk about next week, we'll start right now, is how each of these lines is actually uh, a perspective on practice, contented and easily satisfied. He's sitting in a cave for 12 years with rice and beans and flour and oil. 
that's extremely easily satisfied. Mm-hmm. You know that. Yeah, Rebecca. Can I tell you something? She, I came on Monday night, and she spoke about this period of her time now after the case, which is contented and easily satisfied. Someone asked her, is she now, after the relative simplicity of living in the cave, if she now feels nervous or anxious about the responsibility of 50 nuns? And she said no, because at the beginning of this stage of my journey, I sat down and I had a conversation with Tara. And I said, Tara, if you want this nunnery to be so, then make it so. I'll be your front woman. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, I don't feel nervous. And she she stopped for about two minutes and she thought and thought. She said, I've never felt nervous about it. And yeah. just so contented. And so it's extremely compelling because most of us, I think we are, speaking for myself, uh, first of all, I, I think, I, I don't know, but I, I think we're all born differently. I don't want to excuse myself. And, you know, it may, uh, I, I think that, that Ani Tanzan Palma was born with different genes than mine. Um, <laughs> And had a different mother than mine, um, and met her guru, or you know, early on. Um, but I think the two compelling things are not to be afraid, and uh, not to need. You know, when you think about the, the the four noble truths, life is very complicated. Uh, suffering is what manifests. When we can't accommodate, when we when we need to have things different from how they are, it's essentially need. the The word in in um, in uh, in uh, Pali in the suttas for need is is tanha, and it's actually translated as craving. When when it's just, it's not just I prefer it another way, but my mind can't relax unless things are another way. Which we, you know, which we could think about in a lot of things that we think we need. Um, I, you know, I think we. Uh, I, I wonder if the uh, the election is a good analogy because, uh, first of all, I don't know how everybody here voted, but by and large, uh, everybody knows that I was very pleased with the election results. I needed so much for them to be this way because I had fear about them not being that way. So I can see how fear and need are intimately entwined with each other. And I um, had a, a discussion with Melvin McLeod yesterday, who's the editor of the Shambhala Sun. We're talking about uh, writing about people uniformly having that response to the uh, pre-election days and saying, you know, I'm a meditator for... X number of years, and I really realize that you do all you can do, and once you've done everything that you can do, there's nothing more you can do. Worrying is extra, but I worried anyway, is what people <laughs> said. And we talked about the fact that that presented with um, the sense of jeopardy about something, this would be a bad thing if it happened, the body gets tense, whether you can do anything about it or not. You know, you can say, it's out of my control. It's out of my control. Worse, more, (laughs) all the more reasons to be tense about it. And so he and I had a discussion about somehow writing about that for the Shambhala Sun. 
that no matter how much you know, the body is on its own in terms of getting frightened. But different people have different abilities to say, you know, it'll be what it'll be. Like her saying, you get sick, you get sick. Either you get better or you don't. Either you live or you don't live. Ah, either, yeah. Um, my mother, who was Jewish, but she uh, liked to have a lot of funny sayings and old superstitions. And I guess this was a hillbilly rhyme that she used to quote to me. And I suddenly realized, oh, that's very Buddhist. It's kind of like what she was saying. I grew up with my mom chanting, eat when you're hungry, drink when you're dry. If a tree don't fall on you, you live till you die. (laughs) 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 That is very good. We should write that in. It's a little hillbilly. When people go through, I never did, but there are so many people with, uh, you know, kind of hysterical about food and eating and eating disorders and worrying about this and that and, you know, trying to be healthy and trying to eat organically and worrying and worrying. And that came up a little bit in uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma, which I read. And if you start it too, and he kind of said the same thing, you know, and, and Dr. Dina Dell too, just relax, you know, enjoy your food, you know, and I kept thinking of that funny little hillbilly rhyme. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a very good, what's your name? Caroline. Caroline, thank you for doing that. I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you told us that. Uh, well, now I see it's kind of Buddhist, you know. <laughs> everything, well, here's the clue, everything is kind of Buddhist. Um, um <laughs> My friend Sheila, who's a my friend Sheila, who's a rabbi, who is one of the people teaching that retreat in June that we're going to teach here of mindfulness. By the way, you don't have to be Jewish to take that retreat. I think it'll be very nice. Donald and I and two friends of ours, Sheila uh, Sheila Weinberg and Jeff Roth, both rabbis, are teaching it with us. And Sheila's mother, no longer on this earth now, uh, having appreciated the fact that Sheila has studied and meditated in Buddhist venues for. 30 years now, 25 years, uh, and very much appreciative of Dharma, reported to Sheila, who reported to me that her next-door neighbor, where she lived in New Jersey, said to her, I'm worried about my son, who is getting interested in Buddhism. And, uh, who's, and Ida Peltz, at 90, said to the neighbor, I wouldn't worry about it. I myself am a little bit of Buddhist. So, you know, it's a, it's... <laughs> It's okay. Because when you think about the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. And the word dharma means the truth of things. And the truth of things is the truth of things. You live till you die. And um, let's go back to one more thing about the homework, by the way. So people do. If you get the car, any kind of cards, uh, that, and you put a line on each one, I'd like you to think about... Um, a story that will make each point. If you uh, now, you don't have to do every one of them, but re- read each of them and think: Is this wise understanding, wise aspiration, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise um, concentration, or wise mindfulness? The Eightfold Path. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the Eightfold Path, you will be by the end of next week because we'll put it all together. But for instance, this morning I was thinking. There's a line that says, one should sustain this recollection. I think that that would go under wise effort and wise concentration, 
One should sustain this recollection. We should sustain, if I could sustain the recollection that you live till you die and you actually don't know. I mean, I brush my teeth, I take my vitamins, I take my calcium, and I don't know that the tree isn't going to fall on me tomorrow anyway. And it isn't that I, I am preventing the tree from falling on me by spending this day practicing really open-heartedness towards all beings. It's because I want to live this day until I die. And I think that the hidden fundamental knowledge is not so hidden, but the fundamental message is that we're alive when we are connected in love. I think that those five minutes that we spend listening to who's thinking about who with affection and with care are all the are making manifest all the lines that we could draw, you know. I sit here and sometimes I imagine that we're all here and when somebody says, I'm thinking about my daughter this and my father this and my mother that, it's like we've drawn a line to them because that person is connected to that line and that person's connected that way and that person's connected that way. And then this morning somebody said, all of us here and we're all connected to each other. And somehow I, I, I you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a... We're not literally connected to each other in the sense that we'll all go. We'll, we'll all go home to our individual houses and sleep in our individual beds. But I actually think that what keeps me alive is my connections to people. That I, when I am not connected, even my connection to myself with affection and with forgiveness. Uh, and I told you last week that story about having made a, uh, you know, a very peremptory and inappropriate remark to somebody the day after the election who voted otherwise. And I've been thinking since that time that 48% of this country voted otherwise. That means that 48% of the people that I'm likely to run into feel as badly as I would feel if the election had gone the other way. And I've been really working on trying to have a mind that just doesn't say, well, you know, wait, 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 you'll see it's be better this way, you know, and uh, because I think that too, but really to think everybody had a reason for thinking the way they did. And for me to hold them in my mind, first of all, definitely with absence of malice, definitely that way, but also with respect. They had reason for thinking that way, just as I had reason. They arrived at that. And not for their benefit, but for my benefit, because otherwise I've X'd out half the people that I'm likely to meet in the supermarket from people that I could actually really feel connected to and alive, which is why I think that these practices of moment-to-moment being sure that I am present and present with affection, and, and uh, more than affection, goodwill. Affection may be even pushing it, but goodwill. I can feel affection because I feel affection for my family. I, you know, you all know because I, I say it all the time. But I have people in my family who voted otherwise, and I have great affection. They're wonderful. I love them. They vote differently. We don't talk politics. That's all. But, and I make a big space for them because a, they're my family, and b, I know more about them than just their politics. I know that they're lovely people. I know they do good works in the world. We don't discuss politics. It's actually inflammatory between us. Uh, I'm going to rush to tell you it's not my next of kin, but anyway, (laughs) lest you thought, because that would be difficult. But anyway, uh, just just to be clear about it, 
But anyway, they're people that I have enough business with enough of the time so that they are my practice. They are my practice. I have to see them. My practice for myself at this point is not to see them as, oh, here comes so-and-so who voted differently. How could she have done that? You know, I have to think about there is so-and-so who I love, who does all these good things in the world. Not for her, because she's not going to know what I'm thinking anyway, except she might. I might not sparkle out of my eyes the way that Jetson Palma does. And I really would like to have that kind of a mind that does not... There's a line in the sutta that says, let none deceive another one, another or despise anyone for any reason. Phew! That's a, such a big instruction. It is so easy to fall into that. This is just, you know... I, I More and more, I think that what we are doing... I see we're going to have to continue next week. But I, 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 uh, I joke with my friends. It's not a joke. This is quite serious. I say, my contribution to the Dharma... It's going to be two things. I want you to write it on my tombstone. First of all, that practice is not while you're sitting on the Zafu. Just. You know, sitting on whatever you sit on. Just. Practice is the whole life. It's the cousin walking into the room... And the child who says, you know, I'm not going to go to medical school. I'm going to be an itinerant uh, uh, acrobat or whatever it is that you didn't have in pl- uh, planned for them. That, uh, uh, huh? Or, you know, I'm going to have a different political view or whatever it is. But that, that practice is the whole life. I'm hugely in awe of Jetsuma Tenzin Palmo. Of the of the practice life that you led in the cave, and I am hugely in awe of all of us who stayed out of the cave, and had relationships, and had people, and and had families, and dealt with them, and lived with them. I think it's a huge, huge practice, and that every time you take on somebody, at least in my experience, is every time. I take on somebody, and I, you know, I have my particular family, and I used to think, okay, when they grew up, I would worry less and have less to cons- be concerned about, but they all increase themselves. <laughs> so then you have to worry about all those people. So it's a, and you mortgage away your heart as life goes on. It gets bigger and bigger. So I think it's a huge and heroic task to live in the world. So first of all, I want that on the tombstone, huge and heroic task to live in the world. It is the arena of practice. And the other thing that I want is I wanted to say that mindfulness is exactly the same as metta practice. That if that it that the practice is to meet every moment and every person with the spaciousness of heart that says this is what it is, and I don't need it to be other. I don't need it to be other. I could actually even think oh, I had something else in mind, but I don't need it to be that way. I don't need it to be that way. For my mind to be content, that would be such a triumph if I could say that to myself. And I'm not afraid. That's what it would be. Moment without need and without fear. If I didn't need and I didn't fear, there's a line in the sutta that says, wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease. I think that that's the, that is the prerequisite for being able to wish for all beings, may all beings be at ease that my own mind feels itself to be safe and to be glad, not to need otherwise. Someone says, this and this happened, and say, I'm glad. Edie, what? Just as we're 
ending, I wonder if we could, um, on Friday morning when Susan has her operation, if we could be sending our aura into connected love and blessings and oh, things yeah. for five yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, yes, yes, yes. When are you having your thing? 10.20. Okay. This Friday. 10.20 this Friday. So first of all, we'll send 10.20 this Friday, those people who are having in the mind, 10.20. But right now we'll send in advance for 10.20. We'll sit for 30 seconds. We will send for Susan, who's having the eye muscle fixed this week. And for everybody else here who's having anything, which is probably all of us, (laughs) fixed this week or checked this week. (laughs) I, I discover as I get older that all of my conversations with my friends is, which doctor did you see this week about what? <laughs> How many people have an appointment in the next week about something, their teeth or this or that? <laughs> We're just getting patched up and bandaged till the end <laughs> for all of us. May we be well. May the merit that we accumulate by coming together as a group to think about these things and to work on the transformation of our own hearts for the well-beings of all beings, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. So have a great week. Come back. And next week is Thanksgiving. It is my not from not in the world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.